Welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of Tiny Expeditions. In this episode, we'll talk about how biotechnology is helping us prepare for future novel pandemics. I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, here to help you understand the science. And I'm Chris Powell. I'll be your storytelling guide for this episode. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. At least 59 people are believed to have been sickened by the new virus. Tonight, U.S. airports on high alert, screening passengers for symptoms of a deadly new virus. We start with some breaking news and the World Health Organization has just released a report estimating that 15 million deaths occurred globally due to the pandemic around triple the current estimates. It has called the figures staggering. From hearing those news clips, Sarah, I think I heard a collective groan across the airwaves today. We've heard so much about COVID and quite frankly, many of us are just kind of tired of hearing about COVID. I mean, do you have that COVID fatigue as well? I definitely do. It was all around us for so long and we're still dealing with it a little bit. I mean, I know I saw the other day the newest strain of COVID causes pink eye. I mean, you know, it's it's all around us, but I think it is something that we need to think about in the larger picture because it's really not a question of if we're going to have another pandemic in the future. It's kind of just when. The pandemic also introduced us to a cultural moment, right? There was a lot of divisiveness that happened. And Sarah, as a, a scientist, I mean, it, it must have seemed kind of weird to see people doubting uh, your basically your life's work, what you've studied for so long. It was a little disappointing to me to see people questioning science and straight fact, but on the other hand, you can't really blame them because this all happened so quickly. I mean, we started hearing little inklings of COVID from China in December, but once it got here, it got here, and things were moving so fast, and science was trying to keep up. Really, the conversations, I think, are mostly centered around why can't we be more prepared for these things? Why did it take so long for us to even get what we did in place as quickly as we did? We should have been able to go faster. That's the voice of Lori Hanley, computational biologist with the Hudson Alpha Genome Sequencing Center. We should have been able to have more global involvement a lot faster and because we weren't able to do that we didn't catch everything. Delta hit really fast and granted it was not as serious as those first few strains but it came on really fast and we saw it but we didn't see it because we didn't really know what we were looking for again until because these viruses mutate so quickly it's it's that we could go back and look and see oh well that's where it is that's where it started and when it started rather than having to wait so i think what everybody wants to know is when can we push forward faster if we're going to leave behind the world of fake news and sensationalized headlines well we need to start by defining what we're talking about. So Dr. Sharman, can you help us understand the basics of what we need for this episode? In talking pandemics, we first need to understand what are causing these pandemics. 
So pathogens are microscopic organisms like bacteria or viruses or fungi that have the ability to cause disease in living organisms. They're everywhere around us and they can spread from person to person, from animals to people, and from contaminated surfaces to people. Pathogens spread in many ways, including through the air, water, our food, and bodily fluids. For example, a person with the flu can spread the virus by coughing or sneezing around someone else. Preventing the spread of pathogens is a big key to reducing their spread. We saw this with the COVID-19 pandemic, where masking, handwashing, and quarantining really helped slow down the spread. While viruses are not sentient beings, we do find ourselves in a battle with them as they sometimes mutate to get around our immune system defenses. Have you ever played that game, Pandemic? Have you all ever played that game? It's a great game. It's so much fun. It's a board game, yeah. It's all about strategy. What you actually want to do is make a virus <laughs> that essentially wipes out the worldwide population. But you can't do something like Ebola, right, where it's, um, you know, people just are instantly dying within hours and um, bleeding out of their eyeballs, right? It has to be subtle. And it, and it has to not affect so many people so quickly. And that's exactly how I think that COVID sort of kind of snuck in on us, right? It started in December and we really didn't start like panicking and shutting things down for four months later. And it's because in healthier people, it was kind of sneaky, kind of came on like a cold, a really bad cold, but no worse than the flu. Remember how much everybody confused COVID and flu for the longest time? And so because of that, it didn't really start to uh, become an issue until it hit that elderly and immunocompromised. Remember the very, the first two places in America that we saw this were in nursing homes, right? Or in um, a church that was mainly an elderly population of people. And so because it hit them so hard and so fast, then it really took off from there. It was just like playing a game of pandemic, where if you kind of can sneak things in and start to infect your healthy people, which then infect your unhealthy people, then you can just start wiping out huge populations. Although Lori was just describing a fictional pandemic game, she and her team studied COVID variants throughout a very real pandemic. So the scary part to me was when we would process the data, we could see the variants or the changes that were actually happening in the sequence of the virus. And so the newsman would be, a new variant has been detected in Italy and it's just killing everyone. And then all of a sudden when we start processing our samples and we find that very same variant in a sample here in Alabama, you know, your heart starts to race a little bit and you really start to, as a scientist, you're always, you know, look at the data, look at the data. Well, I'm looking at the data and I'm seeing these scary variants. Throughout the pandemic, creating and analyzing data like Lori described was very important. The more data that could build a more accurate picture of what was happening, the better. So SARS-CoV-2 is actually named SARS because there was a previous SARS virus, right? And 
um, in studying those SARS type or MERS type viruses, we actually had done a lot of science already. Um, virologists around the world had been able to sort of map out what these viral particles look like. And when you're working with RNA or DNA, it's pretty easy once you have the sequence to be able to read it like a book almost and be able to tell where the specific proteins start and stop. And so we already had that map laid out for us. We were also really fortunate that because this was such a fast spreading and global issue, everybody wanted to jump in and start providing sequence data. And so those maps uh, from the very beginning, um, the reference sequence is actually built off of the Wuhan concentrated viral samples. And so that was starting point a of what we could use for the reference and everything from that point on was compared back to that initial sample. For a challenge as large as COVID, it really takes more than a single scientist or a couple of scientists. It takes the whole global scientific community coming together to combat this one issue. When SARS-CoV-2 started being detected, especially in the United States, there was a big push for uh, team science Um, not only in the United States, but also globally. It was moving so fast, it was moving so quickly, and the only way to really start to find answers was if everyone stopped competing with everyone else and really started working together. And so there were a couple of different groups that were formed, um, some by the WHO and One group in particular was Testing for America, and they awarded grants um, for all of this DNA sequencing of these viral samples to happen. The very first uh, grant money that we received, though, was actually through the CARES Act. So Carter, in economic development, actually secured some of that funding with the Alabama Department of Public Health because they needed surveillance for the state of Alabama. And since we were the experts in DNA sequencing, they sort of tapped us to be their sequencing department. And so we had, we were also very fortunate to have diatherics here on our campus. So diatherics processes viral samples for all different types of viruses. And they were already doing that uh, locally for some of our hospitals and statewide. And so they were already starting to process COVID samples for local doctors and hospitals, and then it spun around to the entire state. So they would receive viral samples in, and then once they tested them and verified that it was an actual COVID infection, then they could sort of partition off those samples and hold them for us. So then the Alabama Department of Public Health would say, okay, it's been about a week. Gather up samples, as many as you can, from the across the entire state. Try to cover as many counties as you can so that we can then sequence those samples and try to watch how the sequence is changing. And we can start to detect, are there any pockets, any specific counties where these variants are all of a sudden starting to balloon? The second round of funding came through Testing for America, 
And so they wanted to, across the country, have at least one state lab and be able to watch samples from across the whole country so that then they could start to identify, oh, like what we saw at the very beginning, there's a different strain in Washington State versus what we're seeing in Georgia. Mainly we were tracking ones that we didn't know about because the problem with this process is you don't really know that there's a problem until there's a problem. So you could go back in time and look back at samples, but at that specific moment, we were really focusing on the variants of interest or the variants of concern that had been identified by the WHO. And so we were able to go back into the sequence data and start to see, oh, this is exactly the very first time that we saw this variant. And then that's when this huge wave of infection happened with Delta or with Omicron. So we could sort of watch that through time happen in our state. Lori and the teams working on COVID have learned a lot. And for that, we are definitely grateful because this is not going to be the last pandemic. There's going to be something else that's going to happen right around the corner. And our hope is that we can take the knowledge that we've learned from COVID and apply that to the next pandemic. Sarah, one of the things I thought was fascinating was how Lori talked us through um, identifying the spread of COVID through sequencing. Yeah, Chris, viral surveillance is definitely a very important step in monitoring pandemics, but let's zoom in a little further and go all the way to the individual. So during the COVID pandemic, if you thought you had COVID and you were sick, you went and you got a nose swab and usually that was at your doctor's office or like in your car at Walgreens and then you waited a few days to see if you had COVID or not. But what if you could find out earlier or you could find out in the comfort of your own home? Or what if you didn't have COVID at all and now you have to go get a test to find out what you do have? These are all questions that are very important and that's why we talked to Peggy Salmon, the CEO of Gene Capture, about a new technology that her company is developing. My name is Peggy Salmon. I'm CEO of Gene Capture and I am one of the lucky folks who have sort of tumbled into the biotechnology space. I grew up in Canada one of 10 children. We moved to the States when I was in high school and I've always loved the startup phase of business. So I've liked uh, the entrepreneurship roles. I just love being part of making something that hasn't been made before. And I especially like high tech. Earlier, I described that pathogens cause illnesses. And I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I want a quick and effective treatment to get me on my feet again. Lucky for us, there are many treatments for different pathogens. Antibiotics treat bacterial infections, Antivirals treat viral infections, and antifungals treat fungal infections. But in order to determine the best treatment for your condition, your doctor needs to know what type of bug is making you sick. And there are currently many ways to identify pathogens. Most pathogen detection is done in a microbiology lab at a hospital microbiology space. And so the the sample that the patient gives, so maybe it's a urine sample or blood sample or throat swab, that sample is put in a little petri dish and allowed to grow on a very um, nutritious medium for it. And then after it's grown for about 24 hours, a, um, a trained medical technician is going to be able to look at that and say, oh, that's E. coli or oh, that's salmonella. And so then they put drops of antibiotics in that petri dish and see which one actually kills the the bacteria if it's an antibiotic. 
PCR, very clever technology, um, takes small strands of molecular material and multiplies them many, many times so that there's so much there that you can actually see it. Because in a typical sample, there's not a whole lot of pathogen there. There can be. depends how sick you are. We're doing something completely different. So without amplification, without taking a, a sample and multiplying it or amplifying it, we've decided to look for the RNA in the sample. So you know you have DNA and RNA. And the RNA is made by the DNA, and then it, it replicates itself. So there's a lot more RNA in a cell than there is DNA. DNA, there's one strand, but RNA, there could be a thousand. So we're looking for that RNA. The other really impressive thing about um, looking for RNA is that if there's no RNA expressed in a, um, in a sample, then that means it's not alive. So when RNA is expressed, that means this is an alive microbe in your system. So using RNA is very helpful because sometimes when you're looking at a piece of DNA and it gets multiplied many, many, many times, it might make it seem that you are suffering from an infection when actually you're not. It's just a small piece of molecular material that's in your body, and if it weren't being multiplied up so many times, it wouldn't be an issue for you. So a lot of the physicians that we talked to early on in our discovery phase um, were saying, you know, we want to know if something is alive, and we really want to know if there's a lot of it. We don't, we don't like this idea of multiplying so many times that you may or may, it may or may not be the real causative agent. So what's different for us is that we are not modifying the sample. We're taking little strands of RNA, which is molecular material, and we've developed probes that are complementary, that, that uh, basically attract that little piece of RNA. And once it's attracted to the probe, we have a way to basically activate a little light signal. So it's, if you could think of it as the little microarray that all these probes are on is a bit like a bingo card. And so at the end of our process, we look at that little bingo card, and if B3 and F7 and C4 light up, we say, oh, that's E. coli. If it's a different set, then it's a different um, a different pathogen. The diagnostic cartridge produced by gene capture is a small rectangular disposable cartridge where you put the sample in and the answer comes out on the other side. And if you would like to see what this cartridge looks like, go to our website, tinyexpeditions.org, and there you'll find the episode page and we have a video where we sat down with Peggy and she walked through and showed us exactly how the cartridge works and what it looks like. We hope you'll check that out. But one of the questions we pose to Peggy is, how do you choose what pathogens you're going to look for? When we first met with the FDA, we had such a grand scheme for all the pathogens we were going to look at. And they said, hold on, you can only bring to us a, a pathogen, a test panel that is associated with a certain disease, because that's the only way we can test it. So we decided to start with a urinary tract infection, which has about 10 different pathogens in that disease state. And uh, we also, because of the work we're doing with the Department of Defense, are developing a panel for biothreats. So the kind of difficult bacteria and viral um, challenges that a warfighter might um, be exposed to in what they call a far forward operation, which means they're well ahead of where they could have a medic or a, a, um, a medical facility. So, um, so those are the two panels we're starting with. There's a lot of interest right now in animal pathogens and plant pathogens and other human disease states like 
you know, upper respiratory, and several others. There's so many places we could go, but that's where we have decided to start. A really cool part of gene capture's technology that we haven't talked about yet is that it's actually a two-part test. Part one determines what microbe you have, and then part two determines what antibiotic might treat it if it is a bacterial infection. The question we posed at the top of the episode was, how is biotechnology helping prepare us for future pandemics? And you might be confused as to why we're talking about bacterial infections right now. But it turns out there has quietly been a quasi-pandemic happening right in front of us, brought on by our overuse of antibiotic medicines and products. Gene Capture hopes their technology can combat the misuse and overuse of antibiotics. Bacteria have been around many, many millions of years longer than us, so they've got the tricks. So if you take an antibiotic that you don't need, you are basically training your body's microbiome to find ways to attack against it. And once they can attack against it, then someday when you really need that antibiotic, your body's not going to be what's called sensitive to it. So there is a, um, there's a, a phrase called antimicrobial resistance, and that is a very big concern. Many organizations, including the United Nations and the World Health Organizations, are predicting that by 2050, um, antibiotic resistance will be the number one killer of our civilization, greater than heart disease, greater than cancer, greater than pandemics. What's great about getting this information right there on the spot is if we, in about an hour, can tell you this is the pathogen. Let's say it's Klebsiella pneumonia. This is the pathogen that's in your, your solution. And about an hour later, say, and we applied four different antibiotics to it, and Cipro is the one that works then you've got that answer. You don't have to wait three or four days for something to come back from the lab. And what might come back from the lab is you don't have a bacterial infection. You know, that could come back. Or the lab comes back and says, well, um, you, need, you need Cipro. And here you've lost three days of attacking that bacteria in your body. And of course, it's, it's become, you know, it's acclimatized itself to your body and grown and mutated by that time. So a quick answer is very, very meaningful. There's a lot of promise when it comes to fighting the next global pandemic from the biotechnologies we've talked about thus far. But when we mentioned this to Lori, she actually said one technology that we need to make sure we use for the next pandemic, something that's a little bit more commonplace and known to all of us, simply education. The more we can educate people about what we do here and what happens with science, People need to be more educated about just DNA in general. What's the difference between DNA and RNA? What is a virus? How does it get into my body? And how does my body take it in? All of those things. Education is key. And the more that we talk about it and get it into the normal day-to-day conversation, This is a virus the same way that colds are a virus, the same way that the flu is a virus. And if we can just educate the public more and more, even starting to explain more about how vaccinations work, um, that's going to be huge. Uh, There's huge mistrust now about vaccinations. We've seen that with measles outbreaks, but I think it's potentially uh, and partially because of the lack of knowledge in 
that's out there about how those things actually work. Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. As we begin to think about future pandemics, remember, biotechnology is already on the case. Next episode, we'll explore the world of sustainable alternatives to our everyday plastic products. Maybe your next house or lunch tray will come from grass. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services. We all have one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast interesting, please rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice and tell somebody that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us.